It was the year 1741. It was about six or seven years after the beginning of one of the most dramatic and um, I would say powerful social phenomena in, in, in all of U.S. history. Of course, this was before the United States Constitution. It was before the Declaration of Independence. And yet, in the area of the Northeast, there was what has been called the Great Awakening, or what we would call the First Great Awakening, to distinguish it from the Second Great Awakening in the mid-1800s. This first great awakening, one of its central figures, was a man named Jonathan Edwards. A man you almost certainly have heard of, one of the great theologians of the Christian faith, even as he had his own personal uh, challenges and things that we've had to grapple with uh, in later years. And Jonathan Edwards was in the middle of the first part of the great awakening in Northampton. He also was a central figure as that Great Awakening continued. And as I said, in 1741, about six or seven years after the first, the first uh, sparks, if you will, of that first Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards gave an address, a commencement, to Yale College, a place back then that was built around biblical principles and around teaching people, uh, young men, to go out and preach the gospel. And this was a very important address that he gave, turned into an article, a longer article, that he wrote. And this was important because on either side at Yale College, there were strongly held opinions about the First Great Awakening. There were some, on the one hand, who were entirely in favor of it and were very much supportive and hope, hoping that this significant figure of American Christianity would weigh in on their side favorably on that First Great Awakening. Of course, there was another side that had a very different view of the First Great Awakening. They viewed it as essentially fanaticism. They viewed it as not being really of God, or if it were of God, so overwhelmed with other kinds of counterfeits that it was... Um, simply something to be censured and criticized. Now, I will say some proponents of the First Great Awakening didn't make a lot of friends. As sometimes happens in these kinds of revival movements, you had preachers traveling from town to town absolutely excoriating local ministers and basically accusing them almost, well, if you're not part of the Great Awakening, then you, know, you may not even be born again, right? You, not exactly creating a lot of friends. And whether, they were, whether it was right or not, it had created this whole kinds of controversy so that when Jonathan Edwards got up in the year 1741 to give his address on the first Great Awakening, there was all kinds of, I would presume, hope on all sides. Well, Jonathan Edwards did weigh in. He opened the text to 1 John chapter 4, and he attempted to give a careful exposition of the marks of the Spirit of God when he is at work, and how you can distinguish the genuine work of the Spirit of God in awakening, in revival, in quickening from the counterfeit work, the devil. 
This was turned into a work that Jonathan Edwards has. It has a wonderful title, as many ancient of those 1700s manuscripts did. The distinguishing marks of a work of the Spirit of God applied to that uncommon operation that has lately appeared on the minds of the people of New England with a particular consideration of the extraordinary circumstances which with this work is attended. Ted, aren't you glad that's not my normal title here tonight? We, our website would never be the same and we would have all kinds of issues there. But nonetheless, that was what Jonathan Edwards did. And if you were to go home, I would commend it to you. You may not have time to read all of it, but it, you can find the distinguishing marks of a work of the Spirit of God by Jonathan Edwards as one of the most significant and thoughtful works that has ever been produced on attempting to distinguish from the Bible the works of genuine work of the Spirit of God from the counterfeit work of the devil. Now I start there because history repeats itself. A week and a half ago on a particular Wednesday morning, as I said a week and a half ago, some students at Asbury College, a small Methodist school in Kentucky, um, were going into a chapel service and they did not come out of the chapel service. They continued to worship, they continued to uh, publicly confess their sin and they stayed there all afternoon and into the evening, and more and more students began coming um, uh, to join them. After that time, this kind of fervor has spread throughout the local community. You have had people traveling in from all over the country and indeed all over the world to join in the chapel services that are taking place. And it has created a stir across all of our Christian communities about what is revival? And how do we distinguish between the genuine work of the Spirit of God and between the counterfeit work of the devil who loves to provoke fanaticism and a kind of fervor that ultimately does not lead to spiritual fruit? In fact, 1 John 4, as you see here in your Bibles, warns us of this very thing. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try or test the spirits, whether they are of God. Why? Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Be careful, he's saying. Do not accept that every spirit, that, that every apparent work of God is actually the genuine article. And if you've been following the news or the Christian world at all, you have been seeing this in all different forms. I don't need to quote it from you. I'm sure you may have seen, if you've been following it, those who have been entirely in favor of the Asbury revival and, and very much supporting its continuation. I've also seen some very clear uh, denunciations from those, uh, including people who I otherwise respect, or I do respect, I should say, who have had very different views. Listen to one from actually an influential missionary that was passed along to me. He said, Asbury is proving the old adage that if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And commenting on what he had seen in some of the chapel services that were going on in Asbury, he said, when there is a true New Testament revival going on, Think about what the claim that he's making. When there is a true New Testament revival going on, the word of God will be preached 
Men, not women, will be both leading the organized service and doing the preaching. There will be no, uh, capital letters, no contemporary Christian praise and worship being sung as it is an affront to the holiness of God and so, so much more. Put a stake in the ground. This is not of God. It is utterly a counterfeit. Another person that I saw recently who uh, I, I find very helpful on certain matters, a person with significant influence in, in, in our contemporary moment, said, defining revival as extended days of tangibly feeling God's manifest presence just shows you how Pentecostalized modern evangelicalism has become. That's not revival. Revival is when many people repent of their sins under doctrinal preaching by a pastor in a church. Let me say that again. Revival is when many people repent of their sins under doctrinal preaching by a pastor in a church. Now I say that just to say, when we are coming into the work of, or the potential work of revival, like is, has been identified at Asbury, we need to ask ourselves, how are we going to identify what, is, what are the distinguishing marks of the work of the Spirit of God and what are not? This is why Jonathan Edwards and those who have come before us are so helpful when it comes to understanding the truth of the word of God. God has given us the marks of the work of the Spirit. The title of our message tonight simply will be Marks of the Spirit's Work. Marks of the Spirit's Work. And I want to do this tonight for our benefit, not just as we contemplate what may or may not be happening at Asbury, but contemplating what revival would look like in our lives. What a quickening of God's spirit might have in its effect in our experience. What are the marks of the spirit's work? I want to suggest tonight that there are, going, there are three distinguishing marks from 1 John chapter 4 that we can identify for when the Spirit of God is working in the genuine article. And when we identify those three areas, we'll also be able to identify some concerns or some concerns that have been expressed that perhaps are not biblically founded. The first thing that we should say about a distinguishing mark of the Spirit of God is what it says about the person of Christ. The person of Christ. I want you to see something here, and we're going to glean this from our text before trying to understand where else it might apply or be seen in Scripture. Look at verse number 2. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. How do you know the Spirit of God? Look at what he says. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of anti-Christ, anti-against Christ, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. The first distinguishing mark of the Spirit of God is what it says about the person of Christ. Now what was John saying here as he was writing this letter to this group that, um, that he does not identify, but certainly that includes us. 
Well, what was he guarding against? In his day, actually, it would have been almost more controversial to say that Jesus was a man than to say that Jesus was God. Now, not in our day. In our day, if you were to go even into the prevailing and dominant seminaries of our day, you would see many people who would have no problem admitting that Jesus was a man. But they would have all kinds of problems admitting that Jesus is God. And of course, the, the very core of Orthodox Christian belief across the 2,000 years of the Christian church is that Jesus is both. He is very God of very God, and he is very man of very man. You cannot separate those two things. He is fully God, and he is fully man. Well, in John's day in particular, there was a particular heresy called Gnosticism and a particular form of it called Docetism. And what these, what these philosophies taught was that if Jesus was truly God, he could not be man. Because uh, we, our bodies, our physical makeup, are dirty. They are of the world. They are of a lower kind of of form such that if God were to actually become human, he were actually to put on, if you will, our DNA, if he were to take on himself our body, then he could no longer be God. And so the idea was that Jesus came only in something that appeared to be a body. It was almost, if you will, a phantasm. It was almost like a ghost. It looked like a body. It, 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 it might have even appeared in ways that a body would be, but he was not actually man. Now, this was heresy. And it is heresy for anyone who denies that Jesus was not man. Why? Because your salvation depends on it. As Paul makes clear, because Jesus was the seed of Adam. As in Adam, all die. Even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. If Jesus is not of Adam, if he is not man, he cannot stand in man's place and atone for man's sins. He must be man in order to be Savior. And so John is giving a defining test. What does this spirit, if you will, what is the communication of this work that is going on, of this teaching that is going out in what it says about the person of Jesus Christ? Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. Now this it should not be surprising to us because it's consistent with what Jesus himself said. In John chapter 16, Jesus is giving us the evidences of the Spirit and what his work in the world will be. He will convince or convict men of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That's what the Spirit does in the world. And he went on to say this, He, that is the Holy Spirit, shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine or from me and shall show it unto you. So the work of the Holy Spirit of God is to glorify, is to elevate Jesus. Paul makes the same point in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 3. He says, wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed. 
and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. If you are, if you are being, being enabled by the Spirit of God, you can't curse Jesus. And you can't truly embrace Jesus as Lord, confess him as Lord, without the Holy Spirit being at work. This is what Paul is saying. And so this idea, the first foundational mark of any movement, of any alleged revival, is what does it say about Jesus of Nazareth? Does it identify him as a real person? who was sent by God, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I'm quoting, of course, from the Apostles' Creed. What does this work say about Jesus of Nazareth? You see, not only is this, I think, a sense of the person of Christ coming out in this mark, there is also here, under the same idea, the ministry of Christ. You see, the focus of the Gospels, the focus of the early church on the manhood and the divinity of Jesus Christ was a defense of the work that he came to do, which was as Savior. And... We have seen throughout the history of revivals that when there is a legitimate work of God, it is because the saving ministry of Jesus Christ is being held up, particularly in its opposition to sin. In other words, when the Holy Spirit is at work glorifying Jesus, what is he doing? He is convicting people of sin. He is bringing them under the intense recognition that they are a sinner and standing in opposition to a holy God who has given us his son to forgive us of our sins. We have seen this, as I said, throughout the history of revival. I was reading recently a, rec um, a recollection of the Lewis revival, a revival that took place in the mid-19 or the uh, late 1940s uh, and into the early 1950s. And one of the men of God who was used in that way was a man named Duncan Campbell. And Duncan Campbell provided a description of some of the things that happened at that Lewis, during that Lewis revival. He spoke of two women who had been burdened to pray and to seek God's face for revival. And these two women called the elders of the church, of the local church, and said, will you pray with us for revival? Will you gather together on Tuesdays and on Fridays to pray together as we are praying for the work of God? And the elders, to their credit, began doing that. They began meeting in a barn to pray on Tuesdays and Fridays. Duncan Campbell says that he believes this went for almost a month and a half. And I'll pick up his writing right here. Then one night as they were kneeling there in the barn and pleading this promise, I will pour water on him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. A certain young man, a deacon in the church, got up and read Psalm 24. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord. 
And he, here's what Duncan Campbell says. And then that young man closed his Bible. And looking down at the minister and the elders, he spoke these crude words. It seems to me, he said, to be so much humbug, to be praying as we are praying, to be waiting as we are waiting, if we ourselves are not rightly related to God. And then he lifted his two hands and prayed, God, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? But he got no further. That young man fell to his knees and then fell into a trance. Duncan Campbell says, now don't ask me to explain this because I can't. He fell into a trance and was now lying on the floor of the barn. And in the words of the minister, at that moment, he and the other ministers were gripped by the conviction that a God-sent revival must ever or always be related to holiness and godliness. Are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? This is the man whom God will trust with revival. That was the conviction. And Duncan Campbell goes on to explain from that point forward how this revival completely transformed the island on which it was on. He tells of a time when there, there was a service with 300 people that he came to preach at. And he, it seemed like almost just an ordinary service. Though things were done, the gospel was preached. And as they went outside, he said the town was coming toward them, 600 people coming toward them. What brought them to the church? What brought them there? He couldn't explain, but they came. And he tells of other times as the, the presence, the manifest presence of God was there in such a way that people, there was one example he said where there were people at a, a celebrating, a party at a dance hall. And he said the music stopped and everyone cleared out of the dance hall and they all came to church. Why? Why? He couldn't explain it other than to recognize that God in a powerful way was visiting that town as he had visited his people who recognized their need for clean hands and a pure heart. And I say this simply to say that in terms of the work of God, when there is a genuine work of God, Jesus will be exalted and sin will be identified and turned from. Is there genuine, humble confession of sin before God. This is an important component of any genuine work of God. Let me say one comment as well on the question about whether the Spirit brings, if we, if we can say it, a manifest presence of God genuinely in times of revival. I read to you one person who said this focus on the manifest presence of God is just showing how much Pentecostalism has snuck into modern evangelicalism. Let me disagree. You don't need to be Pentecostal and you don't need to be charismatic, which we are not, to recognize that at the same time, there is a kind of experience of the person of Christ by the work of the Spirit of Christ that is nonetheless profound. Listen to what Romans chapter 5 says. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Does that sound like something that you and I are to experience? The love of God shed in our hearts by whom? By the Holy Spirit. I do not reject as categorically a counterfeit work 
when someone deeply and movingly experiences the love of God shed abroad in a fresh and dynamic way. Haven't you had that? Haven't you experienced that kind of love of God shed abroad? Listen to what Paul prayed for the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 3. For this cause, he said, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Does knowing the love of Christ and being filled with all the fullness of God sound like something that Paul hopes that you will experience by the Spirit of God? Yes. Yes, he does. And in seasons of revival and renewal and refreshing in our own lives is in particular when we, be, we become aware and we, become a, we, we realize in a fresh way the love of Christ for us by the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. You see, what is a mark of the Spirit of God? What is the person of Christ? What is being communicated about the person of Christ as he is being ministered to our hearts by the Holy Spirit? Is he being glorified? Is his work being glorified? Is his character being glorified in our lives? Secondly, not only is there the person of Christ, there is secondly what I'm going to call the apostolic testimony say, what do you mean by that? Well, let's look at our text, shall we? Verse 4 says, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They, they, these false spirits, are of the world. Therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Do you see what he's saying? How do you know the spirit of truth versus the spirit of error? He says, if you know God, you hear us. Those are pretty bold words, aren't they? Can you imagine if I got up and said, if you know God, then you will listen to me. I trust all of you are well enough trained that if I got up in this pulpit and said that, you'd get up and walk out. Say, no, that, that's, not what we, that's, not, that's not what we stand for here. No, you should take everything that I say, every single thing that I say, and run it by this Bible, no matter how persuasive or compelling it sounds. That is what we stand on. But why could John say that? Everyone that is of God, everyone that knows God, hears us because he knew that Jesus Christ had given the Spirit of God, he had promised the Spirit of God to them to take what he had said and communicate it to his church, including us. He knew that his apostolic testimony and the testimony of the other authors of our New Testament were such that they were controlling because they were the word of the Spirit of God. 
So in other words, what, what John is saying is, how does someone relate to the apostolic testimony that is recorded for us in God's word? And really, I could simplify it from the apostolic testimony to just the Bible. What is the mark of the Spirit of God? What do they do with the person of Christ? Secondly, how do they relate to the Word of God? We talked about this already. What has been a defining mark of revival? When people are convicted of sin by the preaching of God's Word. What is a defining mark of revival? When people confess, even publicly, but also privately, their failure to walk according to the teaching of God's Word. That is a defining mark of revival. James brings this out in James chapter 4 when he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning or, uh, and, 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 and your laughter into heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of God, and he will lift you up. What is the defining work of the Spirit of God? When we are led into submission to the Word of God. Now, it is here where we have to start being careful. What has been one of the great criticisms of what's been going on at Asbury? What is one of the great criticisms about any revival work of God that has happened in the 2,000 years of the Christian church? It is to say, but there are some parts that are off. There are some parts that we see here that aren't according to the Word of God. Look at over here. Look at over there. Look at here. And it is used to discredit the work of God. Now, I have not followed carefully what's going on in Asbury. I'm certainly not in a position to pass judgment on it, but I don't doubt that there are things that are happening there that I would say are not in accordance with submission to the Word of God. I would say we would not do that. I do not believe that is according to the teaching of the Bible. I do not believe that is right over there. We could all find areas in which we identify challenges. And Jonathan Edwards, in his own teaching on this subject, recognized that that was the case. But I also want you to listen to what Jonathan Edwards had to say on these specific topics. He said, It is no sign that a work is not from the Spirit of God in that many who seem to be the subjects of it are guilty of great imprudence and irregularities in their conduct. Do you hear that? The spirits, the people who are subject to the revival, it doesn't mean it's not the Spirit of God at work, even if they are guilty of great imprudence and irregularities in their conduct. Listen to what else he goes on to say. Yea, the same persons may be the subjects of much of the influences of the Spirit of God, and yet in some things be led away by the delusions of Satan, and this be no more of a paradox than many other things that are true of real saints in the present state where grace dwells with so much corruption, and the new man and the old man subsist together in the same person. There's a lot of wisdom there. Let me ask about you. Have you identified a period of time in your life when you were revived and made more like God in your affections toward him and your confession of sin? I hope all of us would be, I've seen that work in my life. I hope it happens regularly. 
where God brings you back to spiritual health when you have declined spiritually in a particular way. Let me ask you this. When you were revived in that particular moment of time, did God make you perfect? How many times have you been revived in one area of your life and then years later you realized, you know, even when God was reviving me in that area, I still had all this corruption over here that I didn't even see at the time. I needed another work to be done over there. Let me put it another way. Some of you were saved at a church or under a ministry that you look back right now and you say, I wouldn't go to that church again today knowing what I know now. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go there. I don't believe they're teaching the word of God like they should be. And yet you look back and you say, but God saved me there. But God did a real spiritual work in my life when I sat under that church. Why should it be any different when we see a work of God being done in places where there are biblical irregularities, where there are things that we say, no, that doesn't look right. No, that doesn't, that doesn't fall according to Scripture. Listen to what Edward says again. He said, if they wait to see a work of God without difficulties and stumbling blocks, it will be like the fools waiting at the riverside to have the water all run by. Let's wait until all the water runs out of the river. No, he said, no, if you're waiting for that. He said, it is with the works of God as with his word. They seem at first full of things that are strange, inconsistent, and difficult to the carnal, unbelieving hearts of men. Christ in his work always was and always will be a stone of stumbling and rock of offense, a gin and a snare to many. Now, I hope at this point you're pausing and saying, okay, okay, Pastor Peter, it's fine that what Jonathan Edwards says, but can you prove it from the Bible? I think I can. I want you to turn in your Bibles for just a minute to 2 Chronicles chapter 30. 2 Chronicles chapter 30. As we consider this idea of can it be said that a genuine work of revival can be going on in light even of biblical and spiritual irregularities or a lack of conformity to the work of God. In 2 Chronicles 30, we are having recounted one of the greatest revivals that God ever did. It was the revival of his people, not only in the southern kingdom of Judah, where there were still godly kings that came and went in that land, but also a revival that was done in the northern kingdoms of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, where there were basically no good kings for a period of two centuries, 200 years. It was under a king named Hezekiah, Hezekiah was led by God to impose all kinds of religious reforms in his day, one of which was reinstituting the Passover. The great feast of the people of God in the Old Testament, celebrating the redemption of their people hundreds of years before under the work of Moses and Aaron. And here, Hezekiah was reinstituting the Passover. We learn in chapter 30 that he sent messengers into the northern kingdom, the enemy kingdom. They were divided. And he went throughout the land. The messengers went throughout Israel saying, come to Jerusalem. Come celebrate the Passover. We're, God's doing something here. We are getting back to what the Bible says, what the law says, what God's desire for, for us is. Scripture says many mocked, but some came. Some came even from that apostate northern 
kingdom of Israel. But I want you to see something interesting here. Notice we see in verse number 17. Scripture says there were many in the congregation that were not sanctified. Sanctified according to the Old Testament regulations for purity. The appropriate kinds of ceremonial purity. Therefore, the Levites had the charge of the killing of the Passovers for everyone that was not clean to sanctify under them under the Lord. Now look at verse 18. For a multitude of the people, even many of Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves. These were the people from the northern kingdom, the apostate northern kingdom that hadn't been doing a Passover for probably 200 years. They had no idea what a Passover was. They had no idea what the real work of God was. They said, they got a messenger saying, come on, come out. We're going to do it down here in Judah. So they came. They weren't clean according to the law of Moses. Yet did they eat the Passover otherwise than it was written? Was it biblical what they did? It wasn't biblical what they did. But look at what verse 18 says. But Hezekiah prayed for them saying, the good Lord pardon everyone that prepareth his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he be not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And the Lord hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. Do you know what the grace of God is? The grace of God is that he was doing a wonderful reviving work in Judah and in Israel. And that reviving work wasn't taken away by the fact that some of those people weren't following biblical particulars, biblical specifics, the law of Moses. They weren't doing it in all the right way. And yet that did not change that God was at work in the main. Do you see the point? The point is, the fact that we can look at Asbury or at any other movement of God and say there are things there that are not according to the Bible does not mean necessarily that God is not at work in the main. It does not mean that God is not reviving individual hearts and drawing them closer to him, just like he was doing the same for those people in the northern kingdom of Israel who had no knowledge of what God was providing for them. See how charitable our heart should be, even as how consistent our witness and our testimony should be? We don't need to overlook biblical irregularities. We can say, you know what? That's a problem. We should do that. We should say, well, watch out over there. That's not according to the Bible that's happening. It may very well be the, the counterfeit work of the, of the devil trying to disrupt the work of God that's happening. But at the same time, we shouldn't be like those who throw stones from the peanut gallery and say, I can find some irregularities, therefore God is not at work at all here. This is all counterfeit. No, no. No, no. We see in the Bible, just because biblical irregularities exist does not mean that God is not and cannot be at work in the main. We see this in other examples. We won't look at them, but I'll just ponder, ask you to ponder the fact that we see repeatedly about the kings of Judah. God used these men to bring revival to his people and to his land. And yet how often does that little phrase come up in our, in our Old Testaments? Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. 
Why? Because, friend, God wants to revive you too. Even when there will still be weaknesses, there will be biblical irregularities, there will be still challenges in your life, but God still wants to bring you to a closer place of fellowship. And if God's doing that at Asbury right now, if he's doing that at individual hearts there or at other places around the world, we should be the first ones to say, God, do it. Do it. Draw people closer to yourselves. And then let's pray that the right people come who can teach truly these important biblical truths. So first of all, how does it relate to the person of Christ? How does it relate to the apostolic testimony? Is there a desire to come under submission to the word of God? Not necessarily ruled out by any part irregularity, but in the main, what is the characteristic there? And then third, and just very briefly, what is the relationship to Christian community? Will you notice here with me in 1 John chapter 4? Notice what we see here. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and every one that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. What is a defining work of the Spirit of God? It's when he brings the defining characteristic of the people of God to practical effect. Jesus, at his last supper with his disciples in John chapter 13, was going to teach them something very essential about his plan, about the Spirit's work in their lives. And this is what he said, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. What was the defining characteristic of the revived church of Acts in chapter 2 and chapter 4? Their love, their unity with one another, their generosity toward one another, their utter consistency of community and fellowship with one another. What is the defining work of the Spirit of God when there's reconciliation among believers? When there's the confession and removal of bitterness in the Christian community, when forgiveness is offered freely to those who have, who have um, when, when there is offense, and when there is the love for one another that not only res relates to our Christian community that overflows to evangelism for the lost and a desire to see others come into Christian fellowship with us. All of these are marks biblically in 1 John 4 of the work of the Spirit of God. I want to pause here for just a moment to say two things. The first is to kind of bring together here how we should be thinking about works of God that we see. Like at Asbury and other places, let's be wise and let's be discerning. But above all, Let's make sure that we, in ourselves, will not quench the Spirit of God. Here's, I think, the wise, practical advice of Jonathan Edwards. He said, let us all be hence warned by no means to oppose or do anything in the least to clog or hinder the work, but on the contrary, do our utmost to promote it. When God is at work, we should be on that side. 
I'm not here tonight to pass judgment on everything that is happening in Asbury or in any other work of God um, around the world. But I will say this. Let's look for the marks of the Spirit of God. And when we see the work of the Spirit of God, let's promote it. Let's pray for it. Let's encourage God's work wherever we see it. But the second thing and final thing I want to say to us is to ask us, will we promote the work of the Spirit of God in our own lives? I believe fervently that God desires revival for every single one of us. Every single one of us, myself included. And what that is going to look like is it's going to be Jesus being glorified in his person and in his ministry. It means he is going to be glorified in our affection for him, that he is going to be glorified in the way we relate to him on a day-by-day basis, that it will be our hunger and thirst for Jesus and for his work on this world. Do you hunger for to know the love of Christ, to be filled with all the fullness of God? Do you regularly ask God in prayer, God, fill me with all the fullness of God? May your love be shed abroad in my heart. Let me taste in a new and powerful way your person and your character and your ministry in my life. Are you pleading with God to bring yourself under submission to the word of God? To bring yourself to the place of obedience to everything that God says and a turning away from everything that God forbids. Is there that hunger and thirst in a genuine work of the Spirit in your life toward holiness in your walk with Him? And is there a desire for you to see love grow in your heart for your Christian community, for the breaking down of barriers, for the removal of bitterness, for the removal of a spirit of unforgiveness, and for a kind of in this fellowship and beyond a love that would be profound. In other words, are you hungering for revival? Are you hungering for God to lift you above your present condition and to have you walking in a new kind of fellowship with Him? If God comes in that way, if the Spirit of God brings His work in that way, may every one of us have our eyes open to participate in.